welcome everybody uh, and uh, a new welcome to anyone who might be uh, joining us now for the uh, the Dharma talk uh, portion of the evening who may not have been here to sit with us earlier um, though it looks like it's mostly the same group um, Yes, very nice to very nice to be with all of you. Some familiar faces, and uh, also many 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 new faces, many new people uh, for me. Um, so I'm going to talk tonight about uh, view, as uh, Nicholas um, informed us, and I'll speak uh, both quite generally in ways that I think will be very. Uh, common sense, I hope, I intend, and therefore very familiar. And I'd also like to draw more explicitly from uh, the early teachings and talk about uh, view in a way that I believe helps us orient the mind toward a greater understanding of what, uh, of what wisdom is in the Buddhist tradition. The, the Dharma, if you will, is offered to us as a type of hypothesis, um, something to be explored for ourselves, um, reflected upon. It's essentially, as I understand it, our job our, as individuals, um, hopefully with the support of teachers and other students, to develop discernment. Our ability to know the difference between illusion and truth. This is, of course, as many of you know, uh, a very um, uh, a very common way of talking about development on the Buddhist path, knowing the difference between illusion and truth. So uh, this talk tonight explores what it means to develop discernment and to know the difference between illusions and truth. And this this afternoon when I was completing, uh, putting these notes together, uh, and, I, and I was, you know, sort of framing this, this, this very idea, putting this sentence together, uh, aware that I was telling a group of people, I would later this evening be telling a group of people, that I would uh, be giving a talk to them that helped them understand the difference between illusion and truth. And I, I, I thought, well, shouldn't all those people ask, or might many of them ask, doesn't everyone deserve to have their own truth? I would, uh, if I were sitting in the audience. And from a certain perspective, the answer to that is yes. Um, and this, I think, is a very important allowance. And from another perspective, this is considered problematic. So from another perspective, we could say, well, no, the answer is actually no. Uh, and hopefully I can, I can make some sense of that. Likewise, uh, isn't illusion uh, something, if you will, wrongly per- perceived? Isn't illusion a matter of opinion? Again, from a certain perspective, yes. Uh, 
Yet the Dharma doesn't always agree with this. The Dharma does empower each of us with the right and responsibility for discernment. But the way to the end of suffering is not always, um, is not always a, a choose-your-own-adventure, uh, to borrow from uh, popular childhood books from, from my generation. Um, the, the rationale in defense of this, as many of us as practitioners have learned, is that by habit alone, many of our responses and choices in life do not measure up to the high marks of wisdom and compassion that we are capable of. Thus, of course, then we benefit from guidance. Uh, We benefit from new ways of looking at our life. We benefit from practices that we can engage experientially. This, I think, is one reason why we participate in Sangha community. The Buddha's own commitment to meditation and his resulting uh, psychological aptitude left us with a system and a model to follow if we want to. So here's the crux. According to the Buddha, as I understand his teachings, we are the judge of what is right or best. We as individuals are the judge of what is right or best. Yet our ability to perform this evaluation accurately or suitably is compromised by how we see the world and by what we know essentially by our view, which is always limited by our current level of understanding at any moment. Generally speaking, views are one of the most subtle and pervasive aspects of human experience. They are operating all of the time, yet often we are not aware of their presence. So if we think about this a little bit and, you know, if we were to take a poll or if we were to have a group discussion right now, we would have a, a we would have a very, very different list of examples um, from our own personal lives, how we understand this topic, what's important to us. Um, But generally speaking, um, to give a few examples, uh, views are operating when uh, we decide who to talk to in a social situation. Views are operating uh, when we respond or react to unpleasant physical experiences, pain, illness. Views are operating when we respond or react to unpleasant mental or psychological experiences. 
views form the habits we have in response to emotions, both wanted and unwanted emotions. Views convey information to us about whether something is safe or not. Uh, risk typically is not objective, but rather based on learned notions of loss and gain. Views compromise our self-image. They compromise our confidence, our predisposition to shame, guilt, anxiety, etc. In terms of our, our practice, views are operating when we reflect on the validity of the Dharma in our own lives. Doubt, the paralysis of action, is formed by certain views. The habits that we begin to see as our meditation practice develops in one way or the other are indications of how we see and understand our own mind and how the world operates. Even the way that we approach our meditation practice, if we look closely, reveals certain views that we hold. And then if we think a little bit more broadly, views are the very filter we are looking through when we encounter others. All forms of bias, prejudice, and discrimination, both subtle and overt, both conscious and unconscious, arise from our views. Ways that we have learned to see, what we have taken to be true, the social scripts we have witnessed and adopted. Views are also the vantage points we inherit from within our social location, our race, our class, gender and sexual orientation, age and ability, current state of health, all inform our own individualized sense of normalcy. This is also to say then that normalcy, quote unquote normalcy, is not fixed even though there can be a long-standing social or cultural patterns. Normative is not synonymous with optimum. Normative is not synonymous with optimum. In fact, as meditators, if we consider how many of our taken-for-granted views have proven unuseful or even harmful, it makes complete sense that we might begin to assume that many of the ways we evaluate social norms could be equally unuseful or harmful. With even a little bit of insight, this connection is not a big leap to take, I don't think. Individual views shape our own experience of life whether we are happy or not, uh, while at the same time those individual views contribute to the formation of wider socio-cultural patterns, systemic practices, and concrete policies that govern how things work, who gets what, and how problems are solved. The Buddha's 
far-reaching insight was ahead of his time, I suspect, when he said simply, quote, the mind is the forerunner of all things. The mind is the forerunner of all things. So, the views that we hold either contribute to distress and suffering in our lives, or they contribute to the goal of reducing distress. All views make a positive or negative contribution in a causal system. According to the Dharma, therefore, views are not value neutral. If they lead to skillful action, they are positive. And if they lead to unskillful action, they are negative. Uh, Personally, I like to frame this as a matter of helpful versus unhelpful. Helpful versus unhelpful. The Dharma path, and by that I mean a long-term path of gradual development, is one I think of becoming better able to see clearly what views are operating at any given time, alongside the ability to know if they are helpful or unhelpful. So this is a two-part formula, right? First, we need awareness to see the underlying view. And second, we need discernment to know if that view, if acted upon, is going to lead to more suffering or to its alleviation. In fact, I would suggest that maturation on the path of Dharma is evidenced in the increase of helpful views in the decrease of unhelpful views. Helpful views lead to stability of mind, peace, contentment, and generally view the world sensitively with a mind of care. This mind of care is sometimes expressed as kindness and compassion. Alternatively, Unhelpful views lead to a contracted mind, irritability and anger, discontent, and view the world with hostility. This mind of hostility lacks friendliness toward self and others and acts mainly with self-interest. Wisdom is the distinguishing factor between the two. The suffering, um, the, the dukkha, the distress, the discontent that results from unhelpful views can be recognized in at least three areas of our lives. One, suffering inflicted upon ourselves. Two, suffering inflicted upon others. And three, 
Suffering is created or sustained socially, systemically, and institutionally. Uh, this results through a kind of feedback loop whereby unhelpful views feed erroneous perceptions and behavioral norms, which themselves appear to validate the underlying erroneous views. This in turn concretizes and further embeds unhelpful views into our habitual way of perceiving things. Uh, teacher and um, prolific writer and translator, uh, who many of you uh, will be familiar with, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi explains in his book, The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way to the End of Suffering, uh, how dukkha is both evident and subtle. Dukkha, the Pali word, is often translated as suffering. But it means something deeper than pain and misery. It refers to a basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives, the lives of all but the enlightened. Sometimes this unsatisfactoriness erupts into the open as sorrow, grief, disappointment, or despair. But usually it hovers at the edge of our awareness as a vague, unlocalized sense that things are never quite perfect, never fully adequate to our expectations of what they should be. This fact of dukkha, the Buddha says, is the only real spiritual problem. What is unhelpful is often not recognized as unhelpful. That's the problem. This is ignorance in its most basic form. Not ignorance as in not having information, but rather in not seeing clearly what causes suffering and what does not cause suffering. We have a plethora of evidence in our culture of being uh, good at many things, uh, having certain types of knowledge and skills, and still causing harm, right? We, uh, we know this, we see this operating daily. Uh, and, and we often are pointing, when, when we see this daily, we're often pointing outside ourselves, right? particularly at this particular time, particularly at this time in our life. However, when we are honest, we can see this pattern in our own lives, the ways that we excel in certain areas, but are not actually free of suffering. And we can also see then the way that we play a role in the suffering of others. Dukkha, however, is not quite the main problem that Buddhism deals with, even though that might be the most common presentation, even among Buddhist teachers. This presentation is not wrong, not, not at all, 
Um, this is a result of emphasis, uh, not inaccuracy. However, for our practice to be one that qualifies as insightful, as our tradition's name implies, the insight tradition or the insight meditation tradition, it will be helpful, I think, to remember that dukkha is a symptom. The fact that all symptoms have a cause implies that there is something else we have to familiarize ourselves with. Knowledge of the presence of dukkha is not enough. Knowledge of the presence of dukkha is not enough. The real problem, as far as the Dharma is concerned, is how we perceive the world. How the ways that we contact the sensory world results in mental states that are antithetical to wisdom. As I think I may have alluded to earlier in the, in the suttas as well as in the Dhammapada, uh, view is often referred to as the forerunner. The forerunner, placing it essentially at the beginning of the Buddhist path and, and, and giving view a central place in the model of awakening that the Buddha taught. What is implied by view is the sum total of our beliefs, concepts, and ideas. So when we talk about view, we're talking about the mind in Pali Chitta. Um, for those of you who are familiar with mindfulness or the Satipatthana Sutta, this is the third foundation of mindfulness. From the perspective of the Dharma, our, our experiences and the perceptions born of them are subjective until, and this is a, a maybe a provocative idea, until we all meet in wisdom. Our experiences and the perceptions born of them are subjective until we all meet in wisdom. We are, each of us, the cause of suffering in the world and the means by which suffering can come to an end. So we need uh, humility, a willingness to be vulnerable. We need transparency an ability to be honest, and we need accountability, an interest in being the source of helpful views and helpful actions, and a willingness to spend the time necessary to become capable of this. I believe that this is one of the reasons that we meditate. For many of us, it may be the reason that we meditate. The Dharma places avidya as the root of all suffering. Avidya, or ignorance, is a type of not knowing that allows for dukkha to be part of our human experience. Avidya is the opposite of wisdom. 
uh, leaning on uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi once again. The Buddha teaches that there is one defilement which gives rise to all of the others, one root which holds them all in place. This root is ignorance, avidya. Ignorance is not mere absence of knowledge, a lack of knowing particular pieces of information. Ignorance can coexist with a vast accumulation of itemized knowledge, and in its own way, it can be tremendously shrewd and resourceful. As the basic root of dukkha, ignorance is a fundamental darkness shrouding the mind. Sometimes this ignorance operates in a passive manner, merely obscuring correct understanding. At other times, it takes on an active role. It becomes the great deceiver, conjuring up a mass of distorted perceptions and conceptions which the mind grasps as attributes of the world, unaware that they are its own deluded constructs. In these erroneous perceptions and ideas, we find the soil that nurtures the defilements. The mind that catches sight of some possibility of pleasure accepts it at face value, and the result is greed. Our hunger for gratification is thwarted. Obstacles appear and upspring anger and aversion. Or we struggle over ambiguities. Our sight clouds and we become lost in delusion. With this, we discover the breeding ground of dukkha. Ignorance issuing in the defilements, the defilements issuing in dukkha. As long as this causal matrix stands, we are not yet beyond danger. We are not yet beyond danger. The Dharma is as simple as it is subtle. We have a great misunderstanding, and this is the source of immeasurable yet constant suffering in our world. This uh, misunderstanding is threefold. One, first, being over-invested in pleasant experiences is helpful or good for me. The second misunderstanding, avoiding unpleasant experiences is helpful or good for me. We could say avoiding unpleasant experience is necessary for me to be okay. In three, me, uh, that which is perceived as I, is the central and most important entity, and thus it is helpful, if not necessary, at all cost, to prioritize this I or self, to safeguard it, and to further embellish it. 
we know that these three things are true, or we think that these th three things are true, because our current view of the world often confirms them as valid. Unless, of course, we take for a moment the Buddha's hypothesis that everything this view is built upon is an illusion. Such a notion is the first signal that goes off in the mind prone to wisdom. The Buddha left us with a distinct category of teachings dealing with view called right view, samaditi, right view. Right view is part of the wisdom group of teachings in the organization of the Eightfold Path along with right intention. Uh, together, view and intention form uh, what is sometimes called the path of higher wisdom. Uh, which form a complete system of mental development along with ethics and meditation, the other two groups. Um, the final goal, of course, of this path is the liberation from dukkha, all forms of mental distress and suffering. To be free of mental distress, one first needs to be free of ignorance, avidya. It is these wrong, unhelpful views that are evidence of avidya and keep avidya intact. So, on the Dharma path, the development of wisdom is, in a sense, a correction of avidya, a gradual wearing away of views that are not hospitable to wisdom, kindness, and compassion. Wisdom, as we are told, over and over and over throughout the suttas is the ability to, quote, see things as they are, end quote, see things as they are. At the first level of right view, at the mundane right view, we have a basic grasp of cause and effect. We also assume a level of responsibility for dukkha. This is already uh, a mature starting place. Um, at first, we might be open to how we cause our own suffering. And as we progress on the path, we become more open to how the same habits that inflict harm on ourselves might be the very same mechanisms that inflict harm on others. This seems to be almost a natural conclusion at a certain point. Having a vested interest in cause and effect suggests the beginnings of a moral life, or sila and pali sometimes defined as ethical conduct. Not morality in the sense of following prescriptive behaviors handed down by someone else or a text, uh, but sila being the spirit of genuine interest 
and how to live in the world in a way that causes harmony. Sila is practiced as we effort to discern the difference between helpful and unhelpful actions in the mind states or volitional factors that underlie them. Usually referred to in translations as knowing the difference between wholesome and unwholesome. So the lesson of the lesson of sila is simple. Wholesome or helpful actions lead to favorable results, and unwholesome or unhelpful actions lead to unfavorable results. More specifically, it is helpful to replace greed with generosity. It is helpful to replace anger with kindness, and it is helpful to replace delusion with wisdom. Uh, this first tier of right view, mundane right view, is considered a type of preliminary or foundational view, uh, and it's one that is very helpful at the start of the path. While this preliminary Right view helps us get started on the path. The growth of wisdom is later recognized in part by a more definitive right view, uh, sometimes called superior right view. Assuming we have meditated, um, assuming we have taken sila as an integral part of the practice, assuming we have brought an interest and curiosity as well as suspicion to be our to bear on our own views, uh, we gradually come to see more clearly the great truths that define Buddhism, namely the Four Noble Truths. Most of us know this teaching by its standard formation. Uh, suffering is part of life, dukkha. Suffering has a cause craving or tanha. Three, suffering can be alleviated. This is the good news, right? Suffering can be alleviated under the right conditions. And four, that there's a way of doing this. There's, there's a way to the end of suffering. Uh, and that, as I mentioned before, is the development of wisdom, sila, and meditation. It sounds a bit academic, this Four Noble Truths. It sounds a bit like we are being asked to um, believe in something or to wait for something to happen to us such that this makes uh, some kind of profound sense that it might not, uh, though we've heard it over and over and over again. And uh, different teachers have taken to talking about this in different ways. And uh, Stephen Batchelor, for example, comes to mind, who uh, refers to these as the four tasks, uh, things that are to be, to be done or pursued. Um, and I think that's quite a helpful uh, uh, rendering of the Four Noble Truths. And I've taken a little bit of time to do a similar exercise of uh, hopefully uh, leaning 
on the uh, traditional uh, teachings closely, um, but uh, tweaking them in a little bit to suggest that they are also at a certain point on our practice uh, insights as well, insights to be uh, exercised, uh, to put into action a view in and of itself, uh, wholly and purely formed, uh, that ultimately changes the way we interact with ourselves and with other people. The first of these is uh, the first noble truth uh, or the first noble insight, as I like to refer to it, is um, that we are honest. We are, we, we are able to be honest about the difficulties in our life, personally and socially, collectively. Uh, two, the second noble insight, if you will, um, we are aware of their cause. We are aware of the cause of the difficulties of our life. Uh, the individual role we play and how this affects uh, systemic or cultural delusion. Uh, three, we are optimistic about their alleviation. We are capable of being honest, vulnerable, transparent, and accountable. In three, we are skilled in their removal. We are skilled in the removal of the causes of dukkha. Uh, we're willing to do the work to become more aware than we are today. I'd like to uh, close this uh, segment of me sharing uh, with two very short uh, quotes. The first from James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And Henry David Thoreau, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see.